This is the fourth Sunday of Advent. We've come now to the end of the Advent season and are poised to enter the season of Christmas. And on this Sunday, there is a slight switching of gears from thinking about being prepared, being awake, being alert. And in the last two weeks, we've heard about John the Baptist as the announcer of the coming of Jesus. And today in the Gospel, we hear the story of the Annunciation. So we're moving in earnest towards Christmas. I thought that I would, this morning in my sermon, probably end up doing too much, but I would take the risk. I've been riding a hobby horse over the last couple of months about the Bible. And every sermon I've said to you what my teacher Dr. O.C. Edwards told us in seminary very early on uh, as uh, when I was a student there. And he said to us in class, it is not important what the Bible says. It's important what the Bible means. I might qualify what O.C. said a little and say it's, pro- it's not as important what the Bible says as what the Bible means. But his point was to say that all of us need to become students of the biblical text because unless we're not, uh, we're susceptible to uh, all kinds of uh, interpretations that may or may not be useful as we seek to know God's will and purpose for us. So in my sermon this morning, I'm going to say a little something about all three of the readings from 2 Samuel, from Romans, and from the Gospel according to St. Luke. And as I move to the Gospel according to St. Luke, I'm going to say some things about the Blessed Virgin Mary and how Episcopalians or Anglican Christians have understood her role in the divine economy or not. In 2 Samuel, we have one of the great biblical texts about the outlining or the shaping of the messianic understanding of the people of Israel. And it will be one of the texts that those in the time of Jesus will consult to understand what kind of messiahship they're looking for, even though in its historical context, this Second Samuel reading was not about the coming of a messiah, but rather the nature of the kingship of David and the continuity of the Davidic dynasty, or as the English would say, dynasty. So it has something to do with how we understand what it means when we revere this period in the history of the people of God. So the prophet Nathan is talking to David about two things. One of them is that David believes that he's living in a house of cedar and the Ark of the Covenant is dwelling in a tent. And he believes that God is calling him to build a temple in Jerusalem. And he has some support from Nathan about this, but then Nathan speaks to him and goes away and comes back and says, you know, when we say that we need to build a house, a dwelling place, 
that we need to understand this house and dwelling place in two ways. One is as the temple, the house of God, but also the house of David and the continuity of the Davidic line. And so subsequent to this, even though it wasn't contemplated at the time with the writing of Second Samuel, the house of David is going to go away. Historical circumstances are going to occur where that house gets in some ways pushed to the side. But the yearning of the people of Israel was always that these great days, the great days of King David and King Solomon, were going to return. And there were those who believed that in Jesus they saw this return made manifest, and they read this text and said, this is the biblical prediction that that would be so. And so the Messiah that we yearn for, that we believe now is made present in the person of Jesus, has two parts. Because of the temple aspect of this, we believe that the Messiah is going to be priestly, and we also believe because of the Davidic part, it's going to be kingly. And so in Jesus we will see come together the priestly and the kingly messiahship. And they will say, and you know, this has always been now part of the plan of God. And as we consult our sacred literature, we will see that it is so. That's why we read this as Christian people on this Sunday in Advent. Because that's where we looked for the continuity and where we found it. It really doesn't matter whether or not the writer of Second Samuel meant this at all. That is to say knew or anticipated the birth of Jesus. But it does matter that we have understood that as the people of God who now have seen in this man's words and in this man's works, words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God and the fulfillment of the yearnings of the people for a Messiah that will fulfill both both priestly and secular roles, if you will will somehow uh, say something to us about the nature of God in the world and God's presence as both being spiritual and in some way a governing principle by which we understand how to live one with another. In Romans, we have a very short reading. It's a doxology. And it presents us with an Advent theme that is uh, of the type that we have uh, read about over the first couple of weeks, which is being awake, anticipating, being hopeful, understanding joy in Christian terms. This is about what has become and is obscure, now becomes clear. Paul is speaking about the history of the people of God, the great tradition that is present in the Old Testament that for many Christian people and indeed many people from that time was obscure and now it has become clearer. So we have both an historical comment about what went on. We also have a comment about what is going to happen for each of us and for the community of faith. What does that mean? It means what I said last week in my sermon about joy. Joy for the Christian person is the sure and steady confidence 
that the uncertainties and ambiguities and conundrums of life are going and will come into surer and clearer focus. And that as we seek to be faithful and to understand God's will and purpose through us, for us as we live in relationship, we will become clearer about what it is we're to do and how we are to think. So the illuminative processes of God are at work both in our sacred literature and as that literature becomes now more clear to us. Paul believed that what was obscured in the Old Testament witness, much like in 2 Samuel, becomes clear after the Christ event. This is extremely important because not very long after Paul, within a within hundred years, there were Christian people who began to say, whatever we read about and what Christians call the Old Testament represents a completely other God, has no relevance or use to us at all. And the God that we wish to focus on is the God that we read about in some of the New Testament, not all of it. The most famous exponent of this particular view was a man named Marcion, who lived in a port city and was a very well-to-do trader and had become uh, a Christian. And he wanted to get rid of all of the Old Testament and a lot of the New Testament as well. So this is a passage that the church will use to describe how God's revelatory purposes are at work in history. And as you and I seek to appropriate this text, how God's revelatory purposes are at work in you. Now, you know, when we talk about this, it doesn't mean that you're going to have some kind of blinding insight, some sort of epiphany. That's a word people sort of throw around these days, you know. I had an epiphany. Epiphany means a manifestation of God. Some revelatory processes come to us through doing things like listening to the practical wisdom that other people can bring to us by sharing their experience, strength, and hope. Sometimes spiritual maturity and clarity in God's revelatory purposes can be made clearer by giving you the courage and the confidence to share your practical wisdom with people, that things that you have learned about, as my grandfather would have said, coming from the College of Hard Knocks. We kid about those things, but they're important. And sometimes they can bring to us great wisdom. Here's a little piece of 3995 biblical scholarship that may or may not be of use, but it is important to know this in terms of the history of early Christianity. The manuscript evidence that we possess for the epistle to the Romans, that's the fancy way of saying the copies that we have of the epistle to the Romans, vary. And this doxology appears in the manuscript evidence at the end of chapter 14. So some of these epistles end at chapter 14. At the end of chapter 15. And at the end of chapter 16, which is what we read today. So what you read in the, United, in the revised, New Revised Standard Version 
is the version that we believe is the best manuscript evidence for the epistle to the Romans. So think about it in terms of God's revelatory purposes and how the church begins to understand that this particular manuscript evidence that goes to chapter 16 reflects a truer picture of Paul's theology, even though we may be able to make a case for the fact that chapter 15 and 16 was added by a later writer, not Paul himself, but someone faithful to Paul's outlook who has experienced the pastoral reality on the ground and now gives us, even in the biblical witness, some clarity about the nature of God's revelatory purposes within individual Christian communities. I'm taking a big chance saying that to you, but it is important that you know this because that's sort of the bleeding edge of what we understand about biblical scholarship. Some biblical scholars would refer to those writers as the heirs of Paul faithful to his theology to a fault. So it would be as if you heard from the apostle himself. Now today in Luke's Gospel, we read the story of the Annunciation. (coughs) Excuse me. The Annunciation story where the angel Gabriel visits Mary. And we have the Annunciation And it affords the opportunity to talk about Mary's role in the economy of salvation. So let me say something to you about this. In the great tradition with a capital T, from the very beginning, Mary's role in the economy of salvation was extremely significant. And from about the fourth century on, we begin to see such doctrinal views made present as the uh, virginal conception and something we call the immaculate conception. So this is an opportunity for me to talk to you about what those terms mean. They're not the same. If we speak about Mary conceiving Jesus as a virgin, we are talking about the virginal conception. If we speak about the Immaculate Conception, we are speaking about a doctrine that says, and this was advanced from about 381 A.D. at the Council of Ephesus, that Mary herself was conceived in her mother Anne's womb without original sin. So to put it in fancy later church terms, Mary had post-baptismal grace when she was conceived. Some of you may be listening to this and saying, I have no idea why anybody would care, let alone believe that they needed to advance this point of view. Well, let's not go there in this sermon, but suffice it to say that Anglican Christians, Episcopalians, have a variety of views about the role of Mary and the truth of these doctrines They are not official in our own church, but are held by many as what we call pious opinions. 
So the veneration of Mary in the Episcopal Church goes from non-existent to the max, depending on the communities in which you find yourself and what uh, those communities have come to in terms of their understanding of the importance and centrality of Mary. What does seem to be clear is that since the Reformation, the churches of the Reformation have moved in a direction that has become more respectful and more willing to acknowledge Mary's role in the economy of salvation and to engage in cooperative and ecumenical associations that focus themselves around the importance of Mary. So that is something that I think is worth noting. Reginald Fuller, one of the great biblical scholars of the 20th century, said about Luke's story of the Annunciation and issues like the virginal conception and so on, this. All that the historian can say with certainty is that the basic elements in this tradition are earlier than Matthew or Luke for the name of Mary, her virginity, and the function of the Holy Spirit. They are common to both Matthew and Luke, who are otherwise independent of one another at this point. Remember, I've said recently and continue to Father Brewer's breathless tour of the synoptic theory. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke and Matthew had a copy of Mark's gospel to write their gospel. Mark is the earliest gospel. Luke and Matthew possessed a written source that we do not have but have been able to reconstruct called Q which stands for the German word quella, which means source. And Matthew and Luke each have material that is unique to them, called special M for Matthew and special L for Luke. And so what Dr. Fuller means here is that in the infancy narratives that are in Matthew and Luke, not in Mark's Gospel, We have special M for Matthew and special L for Luke because they're not the same except for the fact that they agree on this. So Dr. Fuller would say many would also argue that these traditions can be traced back to the earliest Palestinian stratum of Christianity. Here's a perfect example of what the Bible means and not what the Bible says. That there is a pre-existing tradition about the Annunciation, about the virginity of Mary, and that that is something that Matthew and Luke, using different sources, felt that they needed to preserve. For whatever reason. But in our tradition as Anglican Christians we would suggest that it is okay to remain agnostic about Mary's virginity, certainly her perpetual virginity, and the issue of the Immaculate Conception, 
which is something that has been disputed since 381 A.D. by some of the great medieval theologians, for example, and their views on this matter. So, see if you can understand how we revere Mary and we don't have to get caught up into a kind of uh, theological hamster wheel about all that. (laughs) Why do we venerate Mary and why do we believe she's so important? Because she is someone who humanizes the Savior. She is someone who is open to the work of the Holy Spirit. She is someone who listens to the still small voice that she knows is not her own. And she has the courage and the perseverance to be obedient in the midst of circumstances that she cannot fully understand and will not fully understand during the entire life of Jesus. And it is that reason we revere her and honor her and call her blessed. The rector of the parish I became an Episcopalian in, Canon Leslie Wilder at St. Matthew's San Mateo, was standing at the door, shaking hands with the people as they came out one Sunday, and uh, a parishioner came out and took his hand, and she said, Father Wilder, don't you think saying the Hail Mary is getting dangerously close to Rome? (laughs) And Father Wilder looked at her and said, No, Helen, I think it's getting dangerously close to the Gospel according to St. Luke. (laughs) So that has always been my view on this matter. This week, as we move towards Christmas, we're going to commemorate the birth of the infant Savior, God coming into human flesh. And in the course of this, as we appropriate this feast for ourselves personally, it might be a good time to think about what are those things that have remained secret for us or hidden or mysterious that are now coming into the open and in clearer focus. For you personally, in your life, whatever it is that you're going through, and how that you can see that you're part of God's revelatory purposes, both for your own clarity and your own emotional and spiritual maturity, but also to prepare you to be the transparency and reflection of God's grace and love that you're called to be. Listen to the still, small voice that may come to you that you know is not your own. Understand the importance of obedience, not as some... A willingness to follow tyrannical rules, but as an openness to the listening of God and to the presence of the Holy Spirit within you, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen you, and see that like Mary, you will be led in a way that will bring you more clarity and not less over time. Amen. <laughs>